The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the vine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is a two-edged sword, that it divides our soul, spirit, body, and marrow, that it convicts us, it teaches us, it gives us hope, and it draws us to you, Lord. We want to respond to your word with faith this morning. We want to respond with hearts that are open and yielded to you. Pray for your anointing upon Randall as he speaks, that the words that he speaks would come from your spirit and they would cut deeply into our hearts, Lord, that we would be not looking in a mirror and turning away, forgetting what we've seen, but your word would sink deeply into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Nancy. All right, good morning, everyone. We are continuing in this series in Haggai. And so again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 2. And we're going to be wrapping this up. Um, And so it's been a great series for us going through this. Um, And the series has been entitled, The Economy of God. We've been talking about what does it look like to trust God with, with everything, not just finances, but, but really the economy, meaning all of our lives. As disciples of Jesus, what does it look like to trust God with all of our lives? And so that's what the book of Haggai is pointing us to. It's full life discipleship, trusting Christ. Um, and so our text uh, today is Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. And uh, the message is this, rebuilt a people of grace, rebuilt a people of grace. Like what, what, what is God's intention here as we wrap up the book of Haggai? Well, he's trying to rebuild them and help them to understand that they are people that need his grace. Um, and so a few years back, I was on an airplane uh, and you know, some people are just those people that just kind of like to be in their space and they don't want to talk to anybody. And they put on their headphones and they're just trying to look straight, making sure that they don't make eye contact with the person next to them. Well, I'm not that person. Uh, When I get on the airplane, I think to myself, okay, how 
you know, how can I at least show this person some kind of like, hey, I'm glad you're sitting next to me. I'm glad you're here. Glad we're sitting, sitting here for the next few hours or whatever. And so, um, you know, I struck up a conversation with a guy um, that was sitting next to me. And, and we started to get in that conversation of like, what do you do? It's always strange for pastors, you know, like, well, what do you do? And, and I've had conversations where I tell them, okay, I'm a pastor. And it's just like, conversation's done, right? Awkward, a little weird. How do I talk to a pastor from this point on? Other conversations is kind of good, you know? So it's one of those conversations where it's like, okay, cool, you're a pastor. And I, he told me what he did. And his job is to go to uh, different sports teams, and help them to analyze different players that they're about to draft onto their teams. And so he was on his way to the NFL Combine um, to go do analytics and testing on different players uh, that different teams would draft. And so that was his uh, whole job. Um, and the NFL Combine in particular uh, tests NFL players that are about to be drafted. It's like this four-day grueling process. So they put them through different, you know, like analyze like their, um, their, their minds, how they think, all the processing, all that type of stuff. Um, and so one of the, the main reasons they do that, he told me, is because um, when these NFL players or any sports players, they're about to get the biggest payday of their life. And so they want to make sure that once that happens, they're not going to make really, really, really bad decisions with the amount of money that they're about to, to get once they get drafted. And so he said, that, that's what I do. See, this man sitting next to me, his whole job was essentially to measure a player's character, measure their character. What type of person would they be if they got this sum of money? Would their lives just go completely off the rails? You see, studies show, and in any field and, and in everyday life, we know this, character is vitally important. And God cares deeply about our character and the type of people that we're becoming the type of people that we're being formed into because his goal, God's goal for us is that we are being formed more into the image of Jesus. Joni Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed from the shoulders down after a diving accident at the age of 17 once said this. She said, God is more concerned with conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zones. God is more interested in inward qualities than outward circumstances. Things like refining my faith, humbling my heart, cleaning up my thought life, and strengthening my character. How does that happen? Does it happen when we just get all this, what we would call in our society, blessing? Right? It's like one day we just get all the things that we're dreaming of and we think that's what my life is all about. Is that what it looks like? Or is God saying something more when he's saying, I want you to experience blessing, but it's far deeper than the external circumstances that you have. So how does God end the book of Haggai? What does he say to his people? 
Well, again, our text is Haggai 2, 10 through 19. And just to give some background, at this time, um, there was a remnant of people who were rebuilding the temple. And so for three months, they were in uh, economic difficulty, but they were still building. Um, And we learned that there were legitimate reasons before they started building not to build. Um, And there were distractions that came. But Haggai challenged God's people to trust God and start to build the temple. And so that's what we've been talking about in chapters one and two, is they get to this place where they say, okay, we're going to build. A small group of people are coming and they're building. And so what's God's last word to his people? Well, he addresses their character. And he does this in three ways. He uncovers, number one, their reason. Their reason. The reason why they're rebuilding the temple. Number two, their trust. And number three, their faith. Reason, trust, faith. And so the first point, the reason. Okay, look at verse, uh, starting in verse 10. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests, so the priests would have been the 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 leaders, the, 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 the ones that were supposed to lead them to God, he comes to the priests. He asks the priests what the law says, so they should know this. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and the fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. So these things don't become holy. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes. The priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it was with these people in this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do, whatever they offer there is defiled. So you're like, okay, this this doesn't make sense. Why are we talking about something touching um, bread and, and touching stew and all these other things? Well, God gives two illustrations to the people here that are hard for us to understand, but the people, and, and particularly the priests during this time, would have clearly understood it. And so the first illustration is about holiness, right? So he's saying, okay, if something that has been made holy, if it touches something else that's not holy, does that make it holy? And they're like, no. But the second illustration he uses, okay, if there's something that's defiled, touching a dead body, extreme case, right? Touch something that's defiled. If it touches something else, does that make it defiled? Yes. And so the first illustration is about holiness. The second one is about being unclean. And so what's the point, right? Like why is Haggai talking to the priests about this? Well, it's revealed in verse 14. And here's what he's essentially asking. Do the people that are building the temple believe that their work for God will make them holy before God? Do they believe that just because they've started this work, they've started building things up, things are in the, going in the right direction, does that mean that they're holy because they're doing that work? See, what God is doing here is he is giving them a warning not to trust in their work, to make them holy before him. God's saying, I know you're doing good things, but that doesn't make you holy. 
You see, like we said earlier, this was the remnant. These were people who were, who were the ones who were building. They were sacrificing. They were obeying God. But again, God is warning them in verse 14. Whatever they do and whatever they offer, there is defiled. It's defiled. You see, it's a good thing that they're building. It's a good thing that they're sacrificing. It's a good thing that they're obeying, but their work for God does not make them holy before God. See, because this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world says, you work your way to God. I work my way to God. I earn my way to God. I clean myself up and make myself holy. But what God is saying is there's no one who can make themselves holy before him. Christianity is that God worked his way down to us. God worked his way to you and me. See, that is the message of the gospel. See, it's a good thing that they're doing all of these things, but it's not enough to come before God and say, look at me, look at what I've done. I'm holy. Isaiah 64, six says, all of us have become like one who is unclean in all our righteous acts, right? These are righteous acts. These are good things that they're doing are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. What does this reality guard us from? To know that, to know that, right? Like even in the best intention things within our own hearts, they're not enough before God. Here's what it does. It guards us from a prideful heart. From a prideful heart. See, they need to remember that they are dependent on God's grace and holiness for everything that they do. They can't do anything apart from God. They can't even do his own work apart from him. They can't come to God and say, hey God, look at what I'm doing for you. Don't you love me more because of all these things? Look at all those bad people over there who aren't working, who aren't building the temple. Look at them and look at me. God's saying no. No one can come before him and get credit because we think that we're doing this righteous thing. But God is saying we must trust in his righteousness. Augustine, early church father once said, it is the function of perfection to make one know one's imperfection. It's, it is the function of perfection to make one know one's imperfection. Here's the thing. God is perfect. God is holy. Like we talked about earlier, it, 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 no one can come before God and say, hey, look at my holiness, God. Look at what I've done. Look at what I've accomplished. Only standing before a holy God can only point out all our flaws, all our imperfections. And by rebuilding the temple, they are not earning God's love, favor, or affection. See, it's not their work that's making them holy. No, only a holy God can make them holy. Only a holy God can do this. And so God digs down deep into their motivation on why. Like, what's your reasoning? Right? Isn't that important to dig down deep? Like, okay, why? Are we doing this? What's the why? That's what God is getting to when he's talking to his people. Why are you rebuilding this temple? Because if you think that you're building it to get my favor, love, even attention, then you are building it with wrong motivations. 
you are missing the point and you will fall into this religious trap of continually feeling like, okay, am I in good, God's good graces today? Because I didn't build today. I missed the building, you know, like I, I didn't do it. I missed a day. It's not that. So he addresses, secondly, their trust. First, it's their reason. Why are you doing this? Second, it's their trust. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, they were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And so now God is moving to their trust. What are we trusting? See, there are two points God is making about what they trust in. He's recounting the past. He's looking back at the way they lived before they started rebuilding the temple. And here's what he's saying. He's, he's doing this to humble them. Right, like when we get to this place where we feel like, okay, things are going on the right track. I'm doing all of these things for God. I'm serving God and I'm, I'm, my life is getting on the right track. And so what happens is we start to live in the present. We say, this is who I am before God, but we forget what the past was. We forget, we forget what the past was and, and how in these moments where we can start to build up in our pride, we think, okay, I'm, I'm righteous before God now, but we forget the people that we used to be. Right? And then we, again, we start judging people around us and all these other things happening. And so God is doing this. He's saying, look at your past. Look at the way you lived before. Look at what you trusted in. He's having them remember their past. And he's having them remember this, that he gave them signs. There were signs that came into their life that he was there. Look at verse 17, makes it very clear. He says, I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. Right, and so there were things that were happening that they should have turned to God and said, God, I need you. But instead they don't. Again, they trust in themselves. So what they did was they ignored him. They ignored God. They ignored all the signs. End of verse 17 says this, yet you did not return to me. Again, this is the uniqueness of Christianity. When you come into a relationship with a God that says, I care for you, and I actually wanted you to come to me. This is personal. This is personal. See, what is God addressing here? He's addressing self-trust. Self-trust. We live in a world right now that is just wrapped up in trusting ourselves. Oz Guinness in his book, Renaissance, said this. He says, numbers and the mania for metrics are therefore a critical element of secularization. Crucially for Jews and Christians, the Bible shows the link between statistics and self-trust. Called to be a separately and distinct people, our call is to the narrow rather than the broad way. For followers of Jesus, the voice of the people must never be taken as the voice of God. See, there are many times where you're gonna take steps of faith and trust God. And there's gonna be that little voice in the back of your mind that says, but that just isn't practical. That just doesn't make sense. 
Why would I do that? And maybe if it not be in here, it's external. Like, why would you do that? Why would you give toward that? Why would you be a part of that? Like we wrap ourselves up so much in what we can do. The metrics that make sense in our minds that we never let ourselves say, okay, who am I trusting in? See, that's what God's getting down to because here's the thing. The metrics to them, it didn't make sense. Hold on. So heap of 20 measures, there were only 10? What happened? I thought we had more. God said, I struck it. I struck it so that you could see that I was there. Again, God's point is not for us to trust in ourselves, but to trust in him. So there's a point behind it all. So God's taking them back. Here's the past. Here's how you used to live. You lived in self-trust. Now I'm calling you to trust in me now. Lastly, he addresses their faith. Their faith. Verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, he's getting specific, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. He's saying this multiple times here. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine of the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you. First, God addresses their current reality. He's addressing their current reality. They, they are still not seeing the change, a change in their crops after sacrificing for three months. Okay, so God's saying, okay, now that you're living in this place where you're trusting me, you're sacrificing, you're building, you're rebuilding the temple. I just want you to know that I know something. That your situation, your economic difficulty hasn't changed. It's actually still the same. And so I want you to give careful thought to that, but here's the important thing that we need to know. Things didn't instantly change overnight the day they started obeying God. It wasn't like this instantaneous, great, you're trusting me now? Everything's fine. Everything's okay. Everything's great. That's not how it was. In this text, God is encouraging his people to keep stepping in faith. See, that's what they were doing. They didn't know that there was going to be provision there, but they just kept stepping and trusting in faith. And God says, trust because now I will provide. I will provide those things. Hebrews 11.6 says this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. He rewards those who seek him. It's interesting, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day. And he's in this situation where he really has to step in faith. He really has to trust God. He's like, my, my job is on the line. But I, I, I'm believing that God is calling me to do this. And so he's trusting God. And, and it's interesting because we were having this conversation where it was this. It was, how many times do we really have to step in faith? 
And how many times do we put ourselves in a bubble to protect ourselves from having to step in faith? Right, like we try to protect ourselves so much that we're like, I don't really, I, I like faith, but I don't really want to step in faith. I believe in God, but I don't really know if I can trust God. See, we all struggle with it, but God says in Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Every believer is called to trust and have faith in God. See, we need to understand Haggai, he's taking a huge step of faith here by literally putting his neck on the line and saying that God will provide. He's like, here's what God is saying. God is saying, I will bless you now. I will provide for you now. And he is literally putting his neck on the line because false prophets could be killed. Deuteronomy 18, read there. says, anybody who comes up with some false prophecy, anything like that, they could be killed. And so Haggai is telling them now things are going to change. And so God is now encouraging them that after three months of not seeing results, they will now see results. How? Why? Because in those three months, God has tested their character. Their character. The type of people that they would be before he provided. Are you still gonna trust me and build even though you don't know what's gonna happen? He's tested them. He's now prepared his people to receive what he was about to give them. I got a email update the other day from uh, Pastor Sema in Tokyo, Japan. And Pastor Sema is one of the planters that we were providing uh, support to in Tokyo. And reading through a support letter, it, the, it is very, very difficult to plant a church in Tokyo. Very difficult. And so this is like years and years and years and years and years where he's just like stepping in faith, trusting God, like that God has called them to do this. Here's what he wrote. He said um, in this letter, last Christmas, my heart was filled with anxiety about this year. There were so few laborers for such a great workload. But, my joyful, um, but to my joyful amazement, God immediately sent another Japanese intern to our church and church members stepped up to fill various roles in the church and God also sent more new people to our church. This teaches me again that it is truly God's church and he knows how to grow his church. When I was not full of faith, God showed himself as a faithful God. As he promised in the scriptures that I will build my church. Praise the Lord for his faithfulness. You see, as God says, trust me, step in faith. It's not that we were these huge giants of the faith. But that we see how faithful God is. Even in our faithless moments. Even in our difficult moments. Right? And so that's what this is is God is saying, okay, I've tested you. Now, I'm gonna show provision. And so just some takeaways from this. Number one, God works on our heart. I can't say this enough. God works on our heart, 
Right? He is doing a formation in here that you and I can't see. And so it's much deeper, it's much broader than the, the little things that we get, get so focused on. And so verse 15 and 18, that's why, again, throughout the book of Haggai, he says, give careful thought. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your situation. I want you to think, think about your past, present, future. I want you to think about these things. And when he gets down to the root of it, he says, I want you to think about your motivations, the motivations of it all, right? Like the motivations for why they started building, the motivations for being a generous person, the motivations for lack of generosity. I mean, how many times are we just paralyzed in fear because we think, okay, how am, how am I gonna make it? How, are, how, are, how is all this gonna come together? How many times? But God says, I'm doing a greater work than what you can see. Because it's much like we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's like the prodigal son story. It's like the prodigal son story in Luke 15. It's about the two sons, right? The two sons who are under the roof of a father who loves them, who cares for them. But one says, I would rather have your stuff than you. And so he takes all his father's stuff and he runs and he, he squanders it. And then you got the other son who's at home. He's like, I'm following all the rules. You got to love me because I'm following all the rules. And you got to give me your stuff because I'm following all the rules. They miss the love of the father. In his book, Prodigal God, that's specifically on Luke 15, Timothy Keller writes, he says, there are two sons. One is very, very good. One is very, very bad. And they're both alienated from the father's heart. Each one of them wanted the father's things, but not the father. Each one of them, think carefully, each son used the father to get what they really loved. They didn't love the father. They used the father to get what they really loved, the status, the wealth, the things they really loved. They wanted his stuff, right? They wanted his stuff. God is a father who is patient, who is loving, who will work with us on our hearts so that we don't become those type of people. Those type of people. Second, God expects dependence on him. And I use the word expects intentionally. <laughs> he expects dependence on him. It's not like God just sends us into the world and say, go, okay, it's cool to go depend on yourself now. No, he sends us out into the world to depend on him for everything. For Christians, dependence on God is not optional. See, you either are or you aren't. You either see things are from God or you don't. You either trust in God to provide or you don't. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Cost of Discipleship says, be not anxious, Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they're the very source of all anxiety. If our hearts are set on them, our reward is an anxiety whose burden is intolerable. 
The way to misuse our possessions is to use them as an insurance against the tomorrow. Anxiety is always directed to the tomorrow. Whereas goods are in the strictest sense meant to be used only for today. Today. See, by trying to insure for the next day, we are only creating uncertainty today. Here's the thing. He lived through Nazi Germany. He lived through a time that was very uncertain. And here's the thing. We can think that we can trust in ourselves so much that it's just, I can depend on myself for today and that will be sufficient because we're not put in these dire circumstances like a brother like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but let's learn from a brother like that, that we are just as dependent and desperate for God as he was living in Nazi Germany. We need God. Lastly, God defines blessing. God defines blessing. See, we live in a culture where many times we think that we should define blessing. We should come to God. And so what we do is we come to God and we say, this is what blessing looks like, God. And it looks more like a Christmas list than anything. And we try to treat God like he's a genie or like he's Santa Claus. Okay, God, here's what I want for Christmas this year. Here's what I want. Here's the list. And when we don't get it, we pout like a toddler, right? We throw temper tantrums and God, why didn't you do this and this and this and this and this? Because we have tried to define what blessing is and not given it up to God and say, God, you define what blessing is. And whatever I have, I'm grateful to you. Matt Chandler in his book, Explicit Gospel, says, more often than not, we want God to have fairy wings and spread fairy dust and shine like a precious little star, dispensing nothing but good times on everyone, like some kind of hybrid of Tinkerbell and Aladdin's genie. But the God of the Bible, this God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is a pillar of fire and a column of smoke. The universe shudders in horror that we have this infinitely valuable, infinitely deep, infinitely rich, infinitely wise, infinitely loving God. And instead of pursuing him with steadfast passion and enthralled fury, instead of loving him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, instead of attributing to him glory and honor and praise and power and wisdom and strength, we just try to take his toys and run. It is still idolatry to want God for his benefits, but not for himself. Not for himself. You see, it is God who defines blessing and looking at God and saying, okay, God, everything I have is from you. And the greatest gift of all is you. Let's consider, do we see God as our ultimate blessing? See, we need to understand that in our world right now, there are a lot of different gospels that are being preached. There are two opposite and equal errors. One is the prosperity gospel that says, hey, just come to God and he'll give you whatever you want. You just have to believe in faith. And if you don't get what you want, then you just didn't have enough faith. And I wanna tell you that is not the gospel from the scriptures. It's not this fairy tale, you get everything you want, gospel. 
The other side is the poverty gospel. It says you can't have anything. You can't enjoy anything. And so you just need to give it all away. And so if anybody doesn't give it all away, well, you're not a real Christian. I want to tell you today, that's not the gospel either. Prosperity gospel, poverty gospel, the true gospel. It is looking at God, saying, God, you are my provider. And whatever you have given me, I receive it with a thankful heart, knowing that ultimately my greatest gift is Jesus Christ. My greatest gift is Jesus. And I just want to love him and know him and grow in him. He is my greatest blessing. See, what we find out is that God is creating a people who ultimately see him, know him, love him, and want him more than anything. Joni Erickson Tata, the one who was paralyzed at the age of 17, wrote um, an article. It was the 50th anniversary of when she had been paralyzed. And here's what she says. She says, last week, my husband Ken and I were at our Joni and Friends family retreat in Alabama. So she started a ministry that reaches those who are paralyzed, those who have special needs. She says, we were uh, lunching in the big noisy dining hall when a college-aged volunteer approached me, holding a kid with Down syndrome on her hip. She gestured at the crowd and asked, Miss Joni, do you ever think how none of this would have be happening were it not for your diving accident? I flashed a, a smile and said, it's why I thank God every day for my wheelchair. After she left, I stared at a, for a moment at the dining hall scene. I suddenly had a 35,000 foot view of the moment. She's right. How did I get here? It has everything to do with God and his grace. Not just grace over the long haul, but grace in tiny moments. Like breathing in and out. Like stepping stones uh, leading you from one experience to the next. The beauty of such grace is that it eclipses the suffering until one July morning you look back and see five decades of God working in a mighty way. Grace softens the edges of past pains, helping to highlight the eternal. What you are left with is peace that's profound, joy that's unshakable, faith that's ironclad. It's the hard but beautiful stuff of which God makes 50 years of your life. Like, when did that happen? I cannot say. But listen to this, but I sure love Jesus for it. I sure love Jesus for it. The difficulties, the trials, looking at your life and saying, you know what, there was stuff that came and went, but I get God and he's in my life. See, how can someone like Joni Erickson Tata, after 50 years after her accident, say something like that? It's because she knows the real gospel. She knows the true gospel. 
She's a person who has been rebuilt by God's grace. The undeserved, unmerited love, not because she just worked her way into God's good graces, but that God worked his way down to us in Jesus Christ. How is that possible? It's because the greater temple was destroyed for us. You see, they're building this temple and eventually it would be destroyed. But it all pointed to the greater temple. The one who said this in John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. In three days, I will raise it up. And because Jesus Christ, the true temple, was destroyed, you and I can now be built up in his grace because of him. Not in our holiness, not in our ability, but in a holy God who sacrificed himself on the cross for us. And he's loved us like that. And so today, let that capture your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that as we wrap up this book of Haggai, we can find that you wanted people to be rebuilt in grace, in your mercy on them, in them looking to you, trusting in you. And so God, I pray that Grace City will be a place where it's not just in the name of the church, but it is in the people It is in us that we are now being built up in you and what you've done. Because Jesus, you were destroyed. Now we can be rebuilt. We can be rebuilt because you were raised. And so God, if there's anyone here that is struggling, I pray that you raise them up, God. Not on their own strength, not on self-dependence, but on your strength. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.